So a week later, I didn't hear back. I wrote another email, and then I got a response very shortly after. And he was saying, oh, Martin, I'm actually going to be in Montreal next week. So if you want to meet, we could do it then. Wow, that's perfect timing. You know, what are the odds? So a week later, um, I'm in Quebec City. It's a three-hour drive to Montreal. Uh, John's in Montreal. So um, I'm like, okay, I'll just drive over, meet with him, and then you know, either stay over, stay the night with some friends or, or some family, and then drive back. Um, the day comes, and there is a massive snowstorm, like a huge blizzard. Like We're talking Canadian-style blizzards, like you know, cars flying off the highway and stuff. Um, in the evening, it started to die down, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to go. Just drive carefully, and I'll, I'll take my time. And I drove through the blizzard, made it to Montreal, got there, and then um, went to meet John. And the, there, I, there I see this guy in... Um, Nothing but, you know, his, his shirt and, and, and pants in minus 15 weather wearing these galoshes, these rubber shoe coverings, walking down the street. And I'm like, oh, that guy definitely looks Australian. <laughs> That's so funny. So then we met and uh, we had a chat, like a bit of an informal interview, and um, he agreed to take me on. And that's, you know, after that, it was just waiting for a visa and flying down to Australia and wow. starting um, PhD there. I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Blab Cuts. My name is Amit Siddiqui. Today on the, on the episode, we have uh, Dr. Martin Smith, who is from the Kinghorn Cancer Center. His uh, expertise lies in bioinformatics, uh, which is a field of science that combines uh, computer science, statistics, mathematics, engineering, to interpret biological data. Now, he deals specifically with RNA molecules and, and their role in, in, inside the cell. So uh, if you imagine the cell to be like a city with the city walls representing the cell membrane, which you know separates the, the city or the cell from its outside environment, and inside the cell you have you know, the parliament where you have all the genetic information, the material contained in these 46 thick volumes. So these, these 46 thick volumes contain all the information related to managing, running, and growing the city, uh, and also responding to different stimuli, external and internal stimuli. And so it's interesting because uh, you have politicians inside the parliament, so these machines that read the DNA, so read you know, parts of those 46 books. So they might read certain uh, chapters, certain books, certain pages, certain paragraphs. And, and what they do is they transcribe the information into another language. Uh, and that transcription then goes to a 3D printer, uh, which then uses that information to build or print out new machines that are needed inside the cell or the city, in our analogy. Now, what's interesting, about 10 years ago when I was in, in high school, they used to think that about 90% of those 46 thick books was, was junk DNA. So they thought that 90% of our genome uh, was actually uh, 
rubbish. It, was, it, was, it wasn't needed. And about 10% was what was really important. Uh, and they, they thought this because back in the days, they, they found that only about 10% of the information in those 46 thick books of our genome was actually being um, got all the way to the 3D printer to make proteins, to, to make machines that were needed inside the cell. And so Martin's research uh, in his PhD was quite interesting because he showed that, in fact, when these politicians, so these machines that read the DNA, uh, when they transcribe RNA, which is just uh, a copy of, of the DNA but in a different language that the 3D printer can, can recognize, these RNA transcriptions uh, can actually regulate. So they are the bureaucracy of, of the whole system. So, so they regulate which parts of the genome get, uh, or which books get read by which politicians, if, if the information actually gets to the 3D printer. So it's, it's a form of regulation that the cell utilizes. And Martin gets into this on how important this is in, in this episode. So um, I hope this was a quick little introduction on his, his research. And when you listen to the podcast, Hopefully everything will be put in context and it will make sense. Uh, I really enjoyed this one and I got to check out the Kinghorn Cancer Center, which was awesome. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy this one too. So my name is Martin Smith um, and I am currently the group leader for the Genomic Technologies Group at the Kinghorn um, Center for Clinical Genomics. Um, I've just transitioned to this role. Previously, I was a senior research officer or postdoc um, in the neuroscience division in the RNA biology and plasticity group okay. at the Garvin Institute. Nice. And uh, for the guys that are listening, you probably uh, have picked it up that um, Martin isn't Australian. He's, he's Canadian. So um, I guess we, what I'd like to do is start from the beginning. Um, what inspired you to get into science when you're a young child? Um, did you, were you always predisposed towards it or was there something in your life that put you on this path? Yeah, I, I've always, as far as I can remember, I knew I always wanted to be a, a biologist. Like from probably around like six, six, seven years old, I was like, yes, I want to be a biologist when I grow up. Really? Um, it's a bit weird for that because most people have no idea until they go to university or something. But right. from the get-go, I, I knew I was going to be a biologist. Um, of course, I had no idea where I'd end up, but... Uh, and that was, I think, from my grandfather, who would always like read me stories, and I've always just been fascinated by nature and wildlife documentaries and this kind of stuff. So he was the the inspiration for you, for not only science but biology specifically. I think so. Yeah, I remember. You know, some of my earliest memories were you know reading books with him and stuff, and looking at at all these animals and critters, and uh, then going in the backyard and and exploring and finding bugs and this kind of stuff. So. Wow, that, that's really cool. And and when you had that realization um, at that moment that you 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 liked biology and you wanted to do biology, is this something that you actively pursued, or did you kind of fall? Even though you had a general idea of what you wanted to do, did you just fall into this path? Like one one one, for instance. Um, like this podcasting thing. Uh, if you asked me five years ago if I was going to do a podcast, I'd be like, man, you're crazy, right? <laughs> but just just by following my interests and somehow I've fallen into this path. Was that a, a, a similar story for you? A, a little bit. I mean, I, I didn't think I'd end up being a researcher. I thought I was going to be making nature videos or something. Oh. But um, when I got to university and I had to choose a, a major, then it was, yeah, I want to do biological sciences. 
Um, and then I kind of didn't really know what to specialize in. And that came with time, I think. So, for instance, I started off doing microbiology and immunology as my majors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fascinated with virology, um, viruses, retroviruses. I thought it was a completely amazing field, and I really wanted to learn more about that. Why? Oh, just because, the, you know, they're, they're parasites, these molecular parasites that hijack the, you know, the, the cellular machinery and then reproduce and this kind of stuff. But when I got to my first virology lesson, um, I don't know if it was the teacher or the content, but it was so boring that I'm just, like, turned off from it, and I was a bit disillusioned by the whole field, and I'm like, oh, maybe, you know, microbiology and virology isn't for me anymore. And I kind of got turned off by, by, by that specific field of, of research or science at that point. Um, and yeah, from that point on, I think, you know, I, my grades kind of you know, lost interest in, 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 in class and stuff. So, um, so I kind of fell off the, you know, the research um, trajectory where you're supposed to get really good grades to get scholarships and then get grants and so on and so forth. This is in your undergrad? This is undergrad, yeah, which right. is in Montreal. Right. So you went in doing uh, microbiology and virology. That's what you, fascinated you. But having um, this experience with this academic kind of turned you off. And it seems like it turned you off from studying altogether. Uh, a little bit. Because, uh, you know, uh, for, for so long I had been looking forward to, to, to doing a, uh, uh, courses in biology, biological sciences, and getting to uh, understand um, microbiology and virology and actually being face-to-face with it, it was a bit of a turn-off. It's like, oh, this is totally boring. This is not what I expected. Mm. Uh, probably, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, they're probably, maybe they're dead now or retired, but it's probably my teacher's fault. They weren't the best. Most teachers at university are researchers and don't have the proper training to be good teachers. Right. Um, there were a few good teachers. For instance, I had a molecular biology teacher who was really inspiring and maybe that's what kind of pushed me towards molecular biology later on, but... Um, yeah, I almost fell off the track at, uh, at, at, on the undergraduate level. Wow. What, what brought you back? Um, I discovered bioinformatics, so this field, uh, which is what I work in now. Okay. Um, and uh, it was a new field back then. It wasn't really popular. There's only a few people working in bioinformatics. How many years ago was this? This was back in 2007. Okay. Ten years. Okay. Um, it, was, it was a burgeoning field back then. And, and now it's exploded because of other reasons. But back then it was kind of uh, still a bit of a a clique research discipline. And I've always loved computers. Um, Ever since I was a kid, my mom always had computers. She was a translator, so she uh, did lots of computer work. You know, I had a Commodore 64 growing up and always kind of been a bit hacky with hardware and video games and stuff. So biology and computer science together seemed like a really good fit for me. So I enrolled in a master's in bioinformatics at the University of Montreal, which is one of the only places you can actually do this uh, back in the day. Um, and then I, uh, I loved it. It was great. Um, being a biologist and doing all that biology stuff, you get to the um, bioinformatics disciplines where you have to do like first-year computer science, discrete mathematics, algorithmics, uh, programming, all these, these really physical uh, sciences where you know, it's, it's mathematical. You mm. need, things have to be precise, whereas biology it was more like remembering pathways and there's always exceptions and stuff like this. So right. it was a kind of a mind... Uh, a confronting change of um, of discipline, right? But you know, getting your brain to wrap around these interdisciplinary changes really, I think, helps you um, gain a, a greater appreciation than right. the sum of both individual components. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, 
the masters that I did the, the first year we had coursework to do so it was a year of coursework and the second year was um, research but the coursework we had four electives so four core units and four electives and I, and I took it on to myself to do everything that was outside of my field oh, yeah. so I did psychology a cognitive science unit um, I did a linguistics unit in my undergrad I did a philosophy unit just because of what you just mentioned now I think the more you know the more well-rounded you are I think the more creative you'll be in your approaches when you're trying to solve an issue yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and for me, it's been pretty much a life-changing experience, I'd say, at mm. least in terms of, of research and opening up your, um, your, your, your field of vision for, for different sciences. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. going into the Masters of Bioinformatics, was that a big change? Did you have a strong mathematics background at, at all? I was good at math. I was always good at math at school, but uh, I didn't have any, like, doing biological sciences. We had a bit of calculus leading up to that university but that was it so how did you overcome that that that, that oh, challenge that was tough it was you know facing the books every night and doing actually doing your homework <laughs> until before that I never did my homework you know I was always just got, got by in class and had pretty good grades without actually studying so this is studying doing the equations and everything and hard work right um, but fortunately, you know, that, that was just a year. Once you, you broke that barrier, then we actually had interdisciplinary courses. Mm -hmm. and they were really good, so that was, that was more fun. So learning uh, algorithms for biological sciences, that was, right. that's when it got really interesting for me. Okay, that's interesting. So you, you did your master's in bioinformatics, and then um, was this a research master's, master's by research? It was a bit of both. So we had um, so there was that first year of um, of courses, mandatory courses to catch up on the computer science and mathematics side, and then I think there was um, one year of um, bioinformatics and elective courses. Mm -hmm. But then you had one year of research as well. So there was a two-year program. I see. Um, and and the research fo focus it was hard for us because there weren't enough bioinformatics teachers. There's only probably a handful of them at the university. Because right. so, it was so new at that time. Exactly. And there wasn't that many people with much experience in, in the field. So to get by that, the, um, the department said, well, you need a main supervisor at the university that's a bioinformatician, and then you can get a supervisor in biological sciences and a supervisor in computer sciences and merge them together, and that's, that's how you, you get the proper supervision you need. Oh, that's interesting. So then I had to find these supervisors, um, and that's really what got me in eventually got me into research and fascinated by research. So I had a bit of a struggle uh, finding good um, supervisors. Uh, there was one supervisor who um, partially agreed to supervise me and then at the last minute bailed. Um, and that was really demoralizing because you know, I'd worked up to, yes, I'm going to go you know, start doing research and then the last minute, sorry, don't have enough money, can't support you. Wow. So uh, I almost you know, gave up at that point. I was like, oh, maybe I'll just become a farmer and... You know, do you really consider becoming a farmer? Oh yeah, just <laughs> in the darkest hour, you know. Wow. But um, then I found another lab after that in Quebec City, uh, working on, on parasite um, biology or molecular biology and genetics of parasites, and that was something I really wanted to. At the time, it was something I really wanted to work on um, because I had just been to South America, went through like the Amazon jungle and saw how poor people were there and how mm. they were suffering from these like diseases that if, if they had money they just wouldn't have these diseases mm. like parasite infections and, and this stuff. So the, the lab I went to there was a parasite biology lab, it was a leishmaniosis lab mm. um, run by Professor Barbara Papadopoulou. Um, and I also had a supervisor at McGill University, um, Dr. Or Professor now Mathieu Blanchette, who is a really inspiring computational biologist. 
Um, and I got to spend time with him as well in, in Montreal doing the more bioinformatics stuff and bringing that back to the biology lab afterwards and then applying these algorithms to the, the problems that we had in the lab. Mm. And it was quite productive for me. Mm. I got two first author publications wow. and a couple of middle author publications at the master's level. So That's really good. Yeah, I was at this point I was like just, you know, e eating, breathing and... and uh, you know, Sleeping whatever else research. happens <laughs> yeah. with research in bioinformatics. Yeah. Um, the, the question I think that a, a lot of undergrad students and even some postgrad students might have, and this is something that really stressed me out when I was in my undergrad, was finding supervisors. How does one determine if a supervisor is good or suitable, and how would one go on to, to find uh, what would be the method by which, or how did you find your supervisors? be a better question to ask. Well, of course, you know, the internet helps. Um, Googling uh, the same fields of research, your same interests, that's the main thing. Even if you have personal clashes down the line with your supervisors, at least you have the common um, topic of research and topic of interest in research. And of course, you, it's good also to, what I did is I, I'd occasionally send emails to people, people in the lab, mm -hmm. like postdocs or more senior people in the lab, and ask them, you know, what it's like to be in the lab, what the supervisor's like, this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. Just, you know, to, to ping, to see if, if, if there are people that support young students or, or kind of blow them off to the, and give them to the postdocs and master students and PhD students. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely the scientific research first, yeah. scientific interests. Um, and then when you do the interview with the person, you kind of get a good feel for it as well. You know, just get that vibe. Right. And ultimately, it's up to, I think, to the students to, to realize what their, what their capacities are. If there's somebody that needs uh, a lot of supervision, then you need to get probably go to a, in a smaller group where you're interacting with your PI more. Um, if you're fairly independent, then think of a bigger group maybe where you, you'll be spending much less time with your PI and you're more independent and more capable of doing your own, um, answering your own problems. So uh, yeah, that's it's it's a hard question actually because a lot of the times you think things are great you start and then you realize mm, either there's a personal or a professional matter that kind of impedes your your you obtaining your full potential. Mm, yeah, that that is yeah that's the biggest concern. But that's actually you mentioned two good things. So you said to research them online, but also talk to their students and postdocs and people who work with them. Yeah, for sure. I think that's very important. Um, yep. It's something my supervisor has advised me. Um, he said that if you if you're considering postdoc or even if you don't want to do a PhD with me, talk to other like if you're talking to other academic supervisors, make sure you talk to their students, because academics may appear a certain way, um, and they may be all well and good when you first meet them, but it's uh, you don't know what's waiting for you down the line unless you talk to someone who's already had that experience with them. Yeah, and ideally somebody that has done the same kind of degree or same kind of level of, of academic research with them. Right. So a PhD student, if you're applying for a PhD, or maybe a postdoc that also did a PhD with this person, because then you'll get a really good feel for how, how much support you're going to get and how much help you're going to need. Right. So in your <coughs> master's, you, you kind of said, is that when you decided um, that you're going to commit to research 100%? Yeah. When I... Um, once I, I discovered my, my fondness for, uh, at this point, is comparative genomics, so looking at DNA between, or genomes between species and trying to learn from evolutionary information, mm -hmm. um, I knew this was what I wanted to do, and I wanted to take it to the next step, go do a PhD somewhere. Now, um, and did you do the PhD uh, in, in Canada? In Canada? No. So I also, 
I could have cu- continued with my master's degree. I was being so productive. I could have just decided to do a PhD in the same lab and get it done with. But I wanted to move out and do something new, work in a new group, work on a new topic, um, and move into something a bit more um, impactful than um, uh, parasites, which, I mean, they're very, it's important to study these parasites because they affect hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to get more into the, like, the human and you know, the greater picture thing of, of evolution in general and genomics and, and this kind of stuff. So, so can I just ask you, so you moved because you just wanted uh, to change your project and, and find something that was meaningful to you to work on, right? Did you also consider, because I've heard this from, from PhD students or even graduates, where they've advised me in the past that it's good to change projects because it, it shows adaptability in the future. If you go for a job, they say, oh, you've started your honors or, or masters here and you did a PhD over here in a different country, let's say. Um, it shows that you're you're adaptable. You can work with different people. Is that something that you also considered what, when you went into your PhD? Not necessarily. At, at the time, I didn't real I didn't realize the benefits of of moving around and and joining other groups for that per se. But I wanted to challenge myself a bit more. I wanted to go into a group that was a bit bigger or um, was working on harder problems or, or bigger questions. This kind of stuff. And um, I I I I think it's very important to move and change topics. Um, but it's also important to not get out of your comfort, not necessarily get out of your comfort zone, but to not move away from something that's going to impact your productivity and, um, and your, your, your career development. So don't stray too far away. Mm. Keep it manageable. But, you know, by far and large, try something new. Don't work on the same protein or the same, um, you know, model organism forever because... You, you're just going to get tunnel vision and right. you're not going to be able to see outside the box or think outside the box. Right, right. And, and so the work that you were doing in, in your PhD was related to your master's, but it's different in the same sense that it was dealing with bioinformatics. Is that the case? It was bioinformatics, yes. Yep. At this point, I've pretty much almost exclusively done bioinformatics after that point. Okay. Um, I've regressed back to the lab a bit. But uh, see, I call it regressing because for me, it's <laughs> we both passed that. It's I'm much more productive on the command line than I am with the pipette. So, right. <laughs> That's uh, so funny. Yeah. So, I after my masters, I I was I was I didn't know where to go. So I was looking for a PhD somewhere, but I wanted to do it overseas. Um, and I had two uh, ideological choices, which were to work on um, RNA secondary structure prediction, which is. Uh, a field of, of genomics, if you will, that looks at modeling RNA structures and, and um, understanding how these molecules work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other field was RNA-based regulation, so how RNA molecules impact gene expression and, and evolution. Um, so the so that's two like long non-coding RNA, things like that? Yeah, so anything that's RNA-related, pretty much. Sure. Um, it, it could be long non-coding RNAs, small RNAs, um, expressed DNA that becomes RNA is, is what I was interested in, understanding how it works outside of just making proteins. So sure. The other stuff it does. Right, the regulatory function of the RNA. Yep. Okay. Um, and there were two labs that I was interested in. One was in Austria, which was a computational lab, and the other one was in Brisbane, which was more of a, a RNA biology lab. Um, and I ended up going to Australia simply because it was two record snowfall years in Quebec City. We had over five meters of snow two years in a row, 
and I was done with shoveling snow. I'm like, there's snow in Austria, so I think I'm going to try to go to, to Australia. Oh, nice. So it's the weather that convinced you to come yeah. down here. Also, my girlfriend at the time was m- looking to go to Australia as well, so that kind of helped balance um, the, the equation towards uh, down under. I see. D- were you not afraid of all the scary snakes and, and, the, and the spiders that people no, <laughs> no, spouting no. out overseas? No, no, no. <laughs> no we, we've got bears and wolves in Canada. Yeah, I was, well, I was so. just about to say, you guys have some crazy animals up there. So. <laughs> no, that yeah. kind of stuff never really bothered me. Uh, actually, ever since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated by Australia. And it was kind of like, it was almost like it was, you know, my destiny to come to Australia. Really? Is it because, did you watch any documentaries on Australia? Is that, was that the case? I don't what, know what it was, really. I think I, I did like a report in Australia in undergrad, uh, undergrad in um, elementary school. And since then, I've always kind of loved it. You know, it's wow. just this mysterious land that's on the other side of the planet. Yeah. It's all these weird animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that's cool. So you decided to do your PhD and you decided to come to Australia. Well, I wanted to come to Australia. I, had, okay. I hadn't been approved or anything yet. Mm. So at this point, I emailed the, the lab that I was interested in joining. I emailed the students as well. Um, to find out what what this lab was. And this is Professor John Maddox's lab, who is is my current boss as well. He was the director of the institute. Um, but uh, at the time, he was doing research, and I sent him an email. And of course, you know these big these big lab people, these big PIs. Sometimes they don't respond to emails because they've got hundreds of them or whatever. So a week later, I didn't hear back. I wrote another email, and then I got a response very shortly after. And he was saying, "Oh, Martin, I'm actually going to be in Montreal next week. So if you want to meet, we could do it then." Wow, that's perfect timing. You know, what are the odds? So a week later, um, I'm in Quebec City. It's a three-hour drive to Montreal. Uh, John's in Montreal. So um, I'm like, okay, I'll just drive over, meet with him, and then, you know, either stay over, stay the night with some friends or, or some family, and then drive back. Um, the day comes, and there is a massive snowstorm, like a huge blizzard. Like, we're talking Canadian-style blizzards, like, you know, cars flying off the highway and stuff. Um, in the evening, it started to die down, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to go. Just drive carefully, and I'll, I'll take my time. And I drove through the blizzard, made it to Montreal, got there, and then um, went to meet John. And th- there, I, there I see this guy in um, nothing but you know, his, his shirt and, and, and pants in minus 15 weather, wearing these galoshes, these rubber shoe coverings walking down the street and like oh that guy definitely looks australian (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny so then we met and uh we had a chat like a bit of an informal interview and um he agreed to take me on and that's you know after that was just waiting for a visa and flying down to australia and wow starting um the phd there right um so you made your so you knew after talking to him you knew that you were going to you're going to go there. What, what was? Did you have any reservations um, before talking to your supervisor? No, not really. I mean, the reservations I had was whether he was going to take me or not. Whether he seemed like a charismatic or someone that would would be a, a good mentor. Mm. Um, and uh, I was convinced after meeting him, and also after speaking to people in the lab, um, that you know it would be good for me. And I'm fairly independent too. I don't need much supervision. I just mm. need somebody to poke me with a stick once in a while and mm. say, you know, what are you doing or why aren't you doing this, that kind of stuff. But other than that, I'm pretty good to to just go on my own. And so for your PhD, what did you focus on? So my PhD was uh, quite the adventure, as as they all are. Um, My project initially was, you know, completely different or very different to what it ended up being. Um, I think most PhD students, the first year, they kind of have like a, you know, a bit of a fumble and and a stumble, and then they get back up and say, okay, this is what I'm doing. Um, so my subject was uh, looking at 
um, evolutionary evidence for uh, RNA secondary structure function. So RNAs function. We know that these, these regulatory mechanisms, a lot of them in the cells are conveyed through RNA molecules, mm -hmm. independently of their protein coding potential. So a lot of our DNA actually gets produced into RNA, and most of it, in fact, I think 98% of it doesn't produce proteins. So that, that was what our lab's focus was. What are these non-coding RNAs doing? Um, and my PhD was to specifically look at secondary structures within RNA. Um, and how these are important. Can you, can you just elaborate what you mean by secondary structures? So is that uh, when the RNA folds on itself and... Exactly. So DNA is double-stranded, forms a double helix. So it's two independent strands, and they're complementary to each other. And the, the, the individual bases in the DNA kind of stick together through the complementary nature. So that same kind of stickiness happens if there's one strand of DNA as well. But DNA is a bit too static, so it won't fold back. Well, it will, but it, it won't fold back as easily as RNA does. RNA is a bit more plastic, so it moves around. It's a bit floppier, if you will. So RNA is a single strand of, of, of um, or a copy of one strand of DNA, single-stranded molecule, which means that these bases, they don't like floating around. They tend to fold back onto each other mm. in patterns that are pre-programmed into the sequences. Oh, wow. So using the sequence composition you can then predict what the structural composition is going to be like based on you know a pairs of t c pairs of g so on right. and so forth right so that's a it's a big field of bioinformatics it's one of the first um, areas of bioinformatics research was kind of modeling these these structural pairings from a sequence mm. and if you mo so after modeling them did you also do ex experimental work to confirm that that was the structures that they had is, is that what you're focusing on if i had another three years maybe okay <laughs> Sorry. no uh sometimes it's it, hard to forget how little time three years is you know yes so, so i was more of a genome-wide screen um, person. So my PhD was really looking at not only the human genome, but all mammals. So the gene, all the sequence genomes of all mammals, aligning them together, looking for similarities in them. Mm -hmm. And from those similarities, looking for similarities that were consistent with RNA structures. Um, so I set out, I did a genome-wide screen using, you know, a whole bunch of bioinformatics methods and statistical analyses. Um, and found that a whole bunch of our DNA seems to function at the level of RNA structure. Now, this is kind of, we've progressed from then, and now we're kind of going to validate specific structures in the lab to, you know, to make sure that they actually occur. But um, during my PhD, I didn't really need to do this because I used evolutionary information to support the structures. So if I can elaborate on that, it's, it's, it's kind of hard for non-specialists to get, get their heads around this. Um, if you take a region of DNA that's more or less conserved throughout all mammals, let's say, or all vertebrates, so you have about 30 species, um, and they all have roughly the same patch of DNA sequence. But there's mutations that occur throughout evolution. Um, and a lot of these mutations, people see them and they think, well, okay, if there's mutations in the, these regions, then they must not be functional because there's no evolutionary pressure to keep the sequences identical. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at it at the level of RNA, you can get mutations in RNA that will not change the structure of the RNA. So the sequence will be different, but the structure will be the same. So if you have an AT base pair, or in RNA it's AU, um, and you switch that around to a UA base pair, it'll be exactly the same. Thing. 
but at the level of sequence, or if you look at it on a, in a book on a, a you know a line per line basis, you'll see that the words are different, but in fact the meaning is the same. So using that kind of evolutionary validation of the structures, you can then, with statistical confidence, say that these regions are probably functional through the structures that they form and not the sequences that they form. So, so with these mutations, uh, in these regions of the genome, do you only see mutations that are not going to change the structure? Is that is that what's happening when you see this? When you're looking at all these different mammals and vertebrates, uh, vertebrates, I should say, you're looking at specific regions of of the DNA, and you're seeing, oh, these are conserved, but they are these mutations. And previously, people interpreted. Uh, that as being okay, this doesn't mean anything. Whereas now you're finding those mutations don't really change the structure of the RNA. That's it. Okay. Um, so not everywhere, but of course there's regions that have mutations that do not maintain an RNA structure. But there are lots of regions, more so than were, was previously appreciated, where this is the case, where there does seem to be statistical evidence that the mutations preserve an RNA structure. So that implies that in, I don't know, elephants, dolphins, and, and humans, we have regions of the DNA that have the same RNA structures. Um, and those RNA structures might have the same functions. Um, I don't know, it could be uh, making vertebrae, you know, splitting vertebrae into different regions, or mm-hmm. it could be more refined features of, of, of organisms than that. Right. So the conclusion of that was that there was about... Um, Thir- we found about 13% of the human genome to be conserved for, for structure. And that was a very conservative estimate, in our opinion, um, and the, because we can only pick up about 40% of the real structures in our tests. So when we simulated RNA structures, we only picked up about 40%. So that means that the 13% is probably more like a 30 or a 40% total, right. which seems like a lot, and it is a lot of the human genome. So a lot of people, other scientists, thought that this was a bit absurd, and then they, they went down to criticize the nitpick, the little details, and of course they only reported the details that suited their narrative. So there was a bit of crossfire with, with what happened. Um, on one side, we, so the findings were pretty much saying that a lot more of the human genome seems to be functional than what we previously thought. A lot of um, scientists, or sorry, a lot of people, especially on these weird um, internet blogs for um, creationists and intelligent design, saw it as an argument for um, promoting intelligent design, saying that, oh, no, that see, it's, it's all there, it's all pre-programmed, it's all been put there in place by, you know, the creator or whatever. And then on the other hand, we had these hardcore biochemists, these old school biochemists that were saying, that, no, it's, it's impossible, you know, it's just statistical noise and so on and so forth. So I was stuck, you know, in between the crossfire. On one side, I'm saying, well, no, the statistics are validated. You can, you know, look at the paper. It's all there. And the other side, I'm like, it's not intelligent design. We used evolution to find these regions. Mm. So that was, it was a bit interesting. It's not something you're used to as a PhD student getting caught in this kind of um, ideological crossfire. crossfire. Yeah, no, that is, that is fascinating. So was that type of work the first of its kind? No, so we um, there was previous work, previously work uh, previous work about five years before that that had done an initial screen for looking for conservation, but they only looked at one percent of the human genome and they limited it to regions that were very conserved at the level of sequence. We were the first to expand it to the whole genome, use more refined tools um, that had a lower false positive rate, and and use more genomes as well. We used up to thirty-two genomes, I think. I think it was, and the first screens had five or six. Okay, that's interesting. So, f- being in this crossfire of these two two different camps, 
Did that affect you in terms of your career? Did it boost you up? I mean, getting all that notoriety for your research? Um, and especially, uh, before I should ask that, did, were there subsequent studies that confirmed your results? Um, so subsequent studies that confirm the results... Or agree um, that there are, these, there, are, there are these regions of the DNA that um, are indeed involved in the regulation of, of gene expression... Um, and obviously this is a novel finding. Were there also subsequent studies that said, hey, this is actually, you know, here's our evidence to support Martin's claim in his study? At the time this was published, this was right, I think right before or right after this um, big publication by the ENCODE Consortium, which stands for the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, ENCODE um, and they published this, this massive study where they basically did uh, in-depth RNA sequencing, so transcriptomic profiling of, of the human genome. They looked at also a whole bunch of biochemical, um, high-throughput biochemical assays to look for evidence of activity in the human genome. Um, and what they found was that over 80% of the human genome is, is biochemically active, either you know, in some cell line or in, in some point in development most of our DNA gets converted into RNA and into, um, you know, epigenetic remodeling, the, these, these higher um, order biochemical functions. So um, we set out to do this because we knew this was the case before. We knew that a lot more was happening than what was reported in, in literature. And the whole purpose of that was to be able to then assign functions to these molecules. So a lot of that 80% of activity is, comes from long non-coding RNAs, these, as you mentioned earlier, these molecules that don't have any or limited protein coding potential. Um, they're highly expressed. They're present in tissue, specific tissues, specific cell lines, uh, in specific cancers, but we don't know what they do. So the RNA structure analysis was to give us a tool to then go look at these molecules in more depth. Now, a few of these molecules have been um, studied in more depth. They've looked at the structures within them. Um, and there, there actually hasn't been that much follow-up on our work. Um, a few people have cited it. A few, few people have used it. There have been biochemical validations of, of structures that we've predicted as well. Uh, but overall, I think it's still, it's still out there, and no one's really made much use of it. And I suspect that we will soon, because... Right now, one of the big problems in whole genome sequencing is we identify all these variants in, in the human genome that might be associated to diseases or, or certain traits, and we don't know what they do. Mm. So uh, my hypothesis is that many of them are actually functioning at the level of RNA, right. maybe disrupting these RNA structures and causing diseases or disorders uh, right. accordingly. Um, just talking about RNA and, and the central dogma, I remember when I was in high school, this is about God, 10 years ago. <laughs> When I was, this is like year, year 11. They used to call it junk DNA in mm -hmm. 2007, around that yeah, time, yeah. 2007, yeah. six. Um, and at that time, that was so strange to me um, uh, because I thought, why is it in your, in, your, in your cells if it's junk? Like, why is it that some ungodly amount of your genome, it turns out to be junk? You know, because back then they thought that exons or the genes were, you know, the most important and everything else was just rubbish. Now, how, how has that, the, how has the cent central dogma evolved from like 10 years ago till now? Has it, has it changed? I think now the consensus in the community is that there's a lot of, it's, it's not just DNA, RNA, protein, and there's a lot more uh, cross-feed 
um, cross-feedback between those components, and especially at the RNA level. So the whole junk DNA thing um, is mostly based on the fact that a lot of our genome is made of these repetitive elements, these old degenerative um, degenerated retrovirus sequences or things called endogenous retroviruses, so these viruses that have been in our DNA ever since like the, the Precambrian explosion, for instance. Um, and a lot of people assume that these weren't functional, that they were just uh, these um, artifacts of evolution. We now know that a lot of the, these regions, these repetitive regions in the human genome, are actually being um, transcribed into RNA, long non-coding RNAs in particular, um, and that many of them have regulatory functions. So this is um, what my master's was on, actually, and this is what got me into this, really interested in this field, which ironically comes back to viruses, because these are retroviruses, right? right. So. And retroviruses have the ability to insert their own DNA in the host That's um, right. DNA, yeah. So a regular virus will just infect a cell and then get the cell to copy its DNA into RNA and then proteins, whereas retroviruses actually kind of do like a, a hard backup of their genome. They put it into the host genome so that it's in there and it'll, the host can't get rid of it because it's in its genome. Well, there's ways to get around that, of course. You know, it's like an arms race between the cell and the virus, but... Um, there's evidence that a lot of these retroviral insertion elements, at least over time in evolution, get um, assimilated by the host organism. So sometimes it can be beneficial to have these, these elements. Mm. So if you think of these, these, um, this selfish gene type hypothesis where the virus is only a purpose for being is to self-replicate and to, to, to you know, infect other cells, um, the molecular features of the virus to get that done can sometimes be beneficial as well to the cell. For instance, if uh, one of the elements of the virus is, serves a purpose to copy itself, if that virus gets inserted next to a gene and that gene gets copied more and more, that might have a, benefi a beneficial effect for the cell in certain instances. Right. So evolution can often m make use of this and incorporate it into these, these regulatory mechanisms of the cell. Right. Uh, is hemoglobin an example of that? Oh, jeez. Because there was hemoglobin A and there's B, I believe. Uh, a is the, the, when you're a, uh, uh, a fetus. Yeah, fetus. And when you grow up, when you become an adult or when you're born, I think the hemoglobin switches. And I could be completely wrong, but I, I, I think this is how it was that you know, the, the gene copied itself. But I, I'm not sure if it's because of uh, a, a retroviral. Um, uh, because of a retrovirus or it's just, you know, um, mutations caused from uh, cell so, copying itself. So that's another thing. So that's a segmental duplication, where yes. there's a bit of DNA that gets duplicated at some point, and then that duplication um, allows for what's called positive selection. So you have two copies of the same gene, so they can kind of drift independently. Mm. One might ma maintain the original function, the other one might gain a new function. Um, so that's kind of the same thing that happens with the retroviruses, for instance. At, at least it's, it's one possible mechanism for the uh, assimilation of functional uh, retroviral elements into the genome. It's a fascinating field, and, and we're starting to understand it a lot more now with the power of genomics. Mm. Um, like, they move around. Some of these retroviruses, or these transposable elements, as they're called, because they're no, they're no longer producing full viruses. They're rather just copying that bit of DNA um, some of them move around in their cells, and they can cause cancer. Um, we're not too sure if they're being used by our cells or not. Like, mm -hmm. There's a few papers that show that these re repetitive elements are actually moving around in neurons. So, in, what, sorry? in neurons, brain oh, cells. Neurons. Okay, yeah. 
Um, so they might, you know, they might have functions regulating aspects of the genome and, and neurons. And oh, that's interesting. So th this is the, you know, it's a great time to be in genomics for this, these kind of studies to really understand the, the, the evolution and the, the power of, of our genomes and, and how they're getting broken up in diseases. And right. You mentioned, we, before we started this podcast, we were talking about a, a very um, recent um, uh, you, you mentioned how there were uh, journalists here and they were because of what happened today. Could you talk about a little bit about what the findings were or what the release was today? All right, so um, uh, I'm not probably not the best person to speak about this. I don't know much about it. It's, this is Genome One. It's a spin-off company from the Garvin Institute. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> it's a clinical whole genome sequencing company. So it's the first in Australia and one of the few places in the world where you can actually get a prescription to get your whole genome sequenced. Um, and you get a full report on a full clinical grade report and you... you um, you basically find out all the mutations and um, a lot of information of you in your genetic makeup. How is this different to like 23andMe? 23andMe is a genotyping service. So genotyping is different to whole genome sequencing um, because the technology is not a sequencing technology, but rather it's uh, looking for mutations using hybridization arrays. So microarrays, if you've right. heard of microarrays. Yes, yes. So you're not looking at it... Um, in 23andMe, you're just looking at mutations, whereas over here you're trying to sequence the whole genome. So you're trying to find out all the bases. Um, Not trying to. Or, or you're doing that, actually. They are sequencing the whole genome, Sorry. yes. <laughs> at very high coverage to get really high resolution, clinical grade um, profiling of your genome. Wow, that's phenomenal. It's pretty cool. You can do a lot of cool stuff with it. I mean, I don't know. Have you done 23andMe? I haven't, but I've heard of uh, a lot of people that do. I had it done just, you know, for for fun being at, you know, in genetics and genomics and it's, it's really fascinating. The, the health stuff is one aspect but the, the ancestry and how much Neanderthal, these kind of things, yeah. you know, little quirky things that really make it interesting and interesting, yeah. get people's attention and get people interested in genomics. Right. And don't they also predict um, if you're prone to certain diseases like Huntington, not Huntington because that you have that no matter what, um, like uh, Alzheimer's or neurodegenerative disorders, they can predict based on certain uh, Polymorphisms, I think, I think is the, or certain alleles that you might have, they can do that, can't they? Uh, 23andMe? Yeah. Yes, they have some health reports in 23andMe, um, but they're not all clinical grade, so they actually got a cease and desist order remember, by the FDA yeah. a few years ago. Yes, yes. Because, you know, the, the core technology is accurate, but it's not that accurate. You sure. know, you might, you might have a, a mistake once in a while that somebody might go and decide well, I'm going to get a double mastectomy because I, I think I have a bracket one mutation, and then it turns right. out that it was just an error in the sequencing. So, yeah. of course, you don't want to have this happening. So yeah. a lot of the time, these health reports are, are limited to this, the regions or the specific um, observations that are clinically um, relevant and very accurate. Right. So with whole genome sequencing, you get a much more accurate view and a much more in-depth view of your whole genome. So not just, um, I think it's 100,000 or so mutations that 23andMe does, but rather all um, three point three something billion four billion base base mutations, base base. or wow. bases, sorry, not mutations. Wow, that's phenomenal. So that's what amazing. they released, or what they announced today, I think, is a new service where they have a whole health assessment, where you come in and you meet a doctor, and then you get a, health, a whole health check. You meet with a clinical geneticist and... Um, and, and then you you, um, you you get your whole genome sequence, and then you get a health report from that at the end of it. So it's right. more for a preventative um, or you know inquisitive nature. So you want to mm -hmm. see if, if you have any risk for certain cancers or whatever. 
maybe you want to change your lifestyle accordingly. Yeah. I think that's what was announced today. I'm, I'm, don't quote me on this. I'm not a, official representative of Genome One or anything. Yeah. <laughs> we'll double check in, in the post talk. We'll, we'll um, provide some more details for the listeners. We're kind of getting close to the end of this podcast, and I have to ask you a couple of more questions before I, I let you go. Sure. Um, so, finishing your PhD, did you do a postdoc? Yes, I did a postdoc. Where? Here at the at the Garvin Institute. So my boss John, I, I was you know I wanted to change again. I wanted to maybe go somewhere else, um, go overseas, go to Europe, go to the States or something, back to Canada. Um, but my John and I got along very well, um, and he offered me a position here in Sydney. And most people they advise against staying with your your same lab. Um, but in this case, I wasn't too worried about that because it's a brand new, a new institute, new environment, mm. new challenges, new new colleagues, and everything. So I came down to do postdoc here with John um, in the RNA biology and plasticity group, nice. following up my previous work on RNA structures and, and moving more into next generation sequencing. Nice. And that's kind of what segued into my current role here um, at KCCG, which is um, genomic technologies. Okay. Nice. Okay. So you, you went through your supervisor, so you had a contact before, because I've spoken to PhD or postdocs where they've kind of just out of the blue, they're like, I'm going to go to, I don't know, Europe and just work there with this lab because they have a similar research interest, but I have no contacts with them. But you, you've, you've used your networks to find um, your next postdoc and, and job positions, which is cool. Um, two last questions, and I have to ask this of everyone that we have on. Um, Looking into the future, what are your aspirations? My aspirations um, are to probably um, refine um, genetic analysis or genomic analysis softwares and applications to to get to the point where, um, have you seen Gattaca? Yeah, yeah, I have. I'd, I'd like to participate in some sort of uh, endeavor for humanity to get it to the point where where we can sequence ourselves easily and, and, and get to the point where you get like a, a constant feedback of, of the interactions between your environment and, and your body and your health and your, your genome and, and, and you know, try to make the health a more personal and um, worldwide you know, common thing where it's, everybody gets their genome sequenced routinely for, you know, for fun. Or, yeah. Something like that. That would be cool. That's, I think, you know, that where would, I'd like to be in, in five, ten years. I think that would be amazing. I, I, I can totally see that happening. Look at computers 30 years ago and look at them now. You can put a computer in your pocket. Um, so definitely, I, I, you know, as technology progresses and as, as we have more scientists like yourself working on it, um, hopefully it will go through that. It will go towards that direction. Well, we have sequencers that you can put in your pocket now too, oh. which is what I'm working on. <laughs> Man. Oh, man, I could show you one. I've got one on my desk. Oh yeah, I'd love to see that. So, so, so this technology that we're working on with, with now is, is kind of has this potential, I think, and it's really it's really fun to work with. Wow, that's really cool. The flip side of that question is looking into the future. What are you most afraid of? Oh gosh, politics, politicians, and you know, cutting research funding, and um, I'm I'm scared that the general population doesn't appreciate the benefits of, of research, core research, and, you know, when people are worried about uh, jobs and, you know, war breaking out between countries and protectionism and all this, they, it, research is always the first to get cut, and the benefits of cutting, uh, I don't know, $10 million off of research funding are, uh, sorry, not the benefits, but the um, cost. Yeah, the cost of doing that is, is more than $10 million. It's probably, you know, hundreds, if not 
billion dollars in, in impact that the, this stuff can have. Yeah. You look at the, some of the greatest uh, biochemical innovations recently, um, CRISPR-Cas9, if you've heard of this, yep. this, these, this system yeah, to go and edit genes. Yep. You know, this is bacterial immune systems. This would not be funded uh, in, in, I think it wouldn't be funded at least in, uh, in the medical, the Australian medical research um, environment because it's just, well, this crazy stuff. You know, mm. it's not going to be useful for humanity. And yet, um, boom, massive impacts. Yeah. Green fluorescent protein. There's jellyfish uh, in Japan, you know. These kind of things, that you, they're the first to get cut, and yet they have the really high impact. So yeah. that's what I'm really fearful of in the future yeah. is you know, I, people. I, to I totally resonate. Um, do you remember Sarah Palin? She was saying something about these scientists, they're studying fruit fly. Couldn't we put money somewhere more productive? <laughs> and that scares me. You know, yeah. The fact that people are so illiterate in, 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 in the sciences that they don't see the value of it. Yeah, I think it scares me that a lot of people listen to Sarah Palin and take her word <laughs> seriously more than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've heard, but she reads all your newspapers, all, all magazines, apparently. Well, <laughs> Do you remember when they asked her? Oh, <laughs> She's like, yeah, I read everything. I can see Russia from my house. <laughs> yeah, I remember that quite well. It's scary. That kind of stuff is scary. Yeah. And it affects us researchers a lot, too. And also, like, the morale. You know, when you see that you don't get much appreciation from society in general for yeah. the hard work you do. At the same time, I understand when you, you've been working on one specific protein for the past 10 years and there's no new drugs or anything that have come out of it, people right. can kind of get a bit um, yeah. fearful of, of investing more in, in research. But right. on the flip side, you know, yeah. there's cool stuff to be discovered. Yeah, my fear is that, um, you know, we've built this culture. It, it appears to me that there's so much skepticism of scientists in the science establishment that um, the next generation of kids won't be interested in science because they see politicians, they see people get science so wrong and, and devalue it in the public eye, that they'd be like, why would I want to do that? You know, that that's, that's concerning. It's definitely, I mean, I've noticed it just in Australia, um, people, undergraduates, there's not that many undergraduates that want to continue doing advanced research studies. Uh. Why bust your neck making you know 25000 or $30,000 a year in a PhD position when you could be a construction worker making 80, 90K a year? Yeah. There's, there's no, there's a, that kind of, you know, you got to put cash in no, these things true. to entice people to come into research. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I think that all kids, though, if you look at kids, every kid's a scientist. They're always, you know, why, daddy? Why, daddy? Why, yeah. mommy? Why, why, why? They always want to know answers to things. And I think if we could foster that at a young enough age, yeah. then every kid's going to be a scientist in the yeah. future. I think that's, that's definitely correct. Um, yeah, I remember being put being turned off from science because of, but I remember doing my first science class in year seven and going home and having a dream about being a scientist there like you go it happened it, it happened <laughs> it, I was in a lab in my dream wearing a lab coat mixing chemicals in my chemistry class in year seven um, but I remember what turned me off was people telling me there's no jobs in science well, and it's, yeah. it may be ignorance because back then you know I was a refugee I didn't know many scientists and people were in the field it may have just been ignorance but the, the, the fact that that perception exists is, is scary because um, I love science I'm fascinated by it, I'm obsessed but there are probably thousands of other kids who were like me that got turned off because of the perception of the concept the concept that exists out there in in, in and even nowadays, there's so many PhD students. You, 
I think 80% of current PhD students probably are not going to get permanent roles or PI, you know, research roles. And rather, you have to diversify your, your skill sets and fit into another niche, work for a company or, or do a startup or, or something mm -hmm. that you, you take your skills as a scientist and you apply them in something that's more beneficial for society directly, economically. Yeah. But you still do research. At least, you know, part of that is research. Right. You, you're not going to spend your whole day in the lab. At no. least it's harder and harder to do that. Yeah, I, I want to end it here, and I, I want to thank you. But can I ask you one last question? Of course. I promise this is the last one. Um, are you interested in doing academia, and have you been doing any teaching? Yes. So uh, I, I love teaching, and I've always wanted to teach. Um, here at the Garvin, it's been a bit hard because we're not directly in a university. Um, we're affiliated to UNSW, but uh, it's more of a, a conjoint lectureship where you basically have an appointment to, to supervise students and occasionally present or give mm. lectures. But we don't have any specific um, lecturing um, quotas, if you will, or, or um, responsibilities. Mm. Um, and I would, I would love to teach more. Um, it's just, it's not really, in my current role, it's not something I do or I, I can do very easily. Mm. Um, supervising students is, is good, though. It's more like a, instead of having a class of 30, you have a class of one or two. Um, so you can you can train students to become really skilled and mm. um, very awesome at what they do, but less broadly. Yeah. And, because, sorry, go ahead. And the whole academic research side of things, well, that's that's kind of what I do. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to publish, you need to get funding to keep going, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, because yeah, that is, you know, academic. When I've I've spoken to academics, and that's a long, hard road to get to. You know, when you're a permanent um, academic, you're a senior lecturer or PI at a university, and, and that seems so incredibly difficult. And now talking to you, working in the industry, I was just curious of if that was your goal in the future. If that's somewhere you'd see yourself, or did you want to stay in industry for the rest of your life? Well, this is an industry. I'm, I'm in academic research no, mostly. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, okay, let's uh, distinguish that from, let's say, university. You know, working at a university, um, uh, teaching, and it's it's very similar. I just have less teaching responsibilities. I still have to do research. I still have to publish my research. Right. I'm I'm still encouraged to get grants, and yeah. if I don't get grants, there's no funding. So the, it yeah. kind of stops there. We have some institutional funds for this kind of stuff usually. Uh, you know, to to day to day stuff. But if if there's a new project I want to work on, we need yeah. to get funding. It's not um, we're not you know an industry per se. Right. Genome One, the spin-off company, that that's separate to what we do here at, at KCCG and TKCC, the Kinghorn Cancer Center. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm actually to flip the question around. I'm actually more interested in going, you know, towards I'd be a bit more interested in going towards uh, industry than than teaching or academia, just because it's new and uh, I can personally see the benefits better in an industrial setting where you're actually providing a service or a product to people that can mm -hmm. that can help them. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me personally, it, it, it's it's more interesting, more appealing to kind of change, kind of a new discipline, if you will, going from the academic background to more something more commercial or industrial. And I'd like to do more of that. And I think that we will with um, in my new role with genomic technologies, we might develop some new tools or applications that might be beneficial. And who knows what the future holds? But yeah. Awesome. That, that was perfect. Um, I want to thank you for being on, on the podcast. Um, by the way, uh, Martin and I were talking about getting students um, at, at the Kinghorn Institute or, or Center. He was saying that, you know, if, if, correct me if I'm mistaken, but you, you guys don't get enough students, PhD students and master's students, and that you'd like more of that. 
It's definitely hard to recruit students at the Garvin Institute um, simply because, as I mentioned, we don't have a foot in the door of the university, so yeah. we don't interact as much with the students. But if you're a young, bright student that wants to get involved in medical research, by, by all means, uh, come to the Garvin, uh, come to the seminars that they have, uh, email around, send a few emails around. Most people here are very keen to collaborate. I know that most postdocs here are desperate to get students, honors students, master's, PhD students. Um, and they just don't know how. We don't really have the, the connections or the, the synergies to do that yet. Okay, awesome. So we'll put up the, those, con those contact details on our website so that people can find um, that and, and get in contact if they are interested. Thank you again, Madan. I really appreciate your time, and I, I've had a blast talking to you. Thanks, Hamid. Cool. Hello, 我要介紹一下我的朋友, Alex Ray. And what Hamid means by that is um, I actually have a confession to make. No, I didn't. Yeah. That's, not, that's not what I meant. I said, let me introduce you my, to my friend Alex Ray. That's all I said. But I do, I do, I do. I've got to own up, man. I've got to own up. I've never seen Gattaca. Oh, what? Yeah. I think I've, I've watched the preview of it this morning. and. Um, oh, my God. I'm going to have to go and watch that how somehow. Not, how have you not watched Gattaca? Ah, uh, it just escaped me, you know. Life got in the way. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's tough. You know, there's, there's a bit of me that's actually judging you right now. You know, actually, when I first watched Gattaca was, I believe, year nine or year eight. And uh, it kind of tripped me out. At yeah. That, at that age, I wasn't too much into sci-fi. And I'm like, oh, I want nothing to do with this. This is a scary world we live, that we'd be living in, you know? Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. It's interesting. You say scary world, but uh, I like how Martin was um, trying to aspire towards this. Yeah, not, not quite, I guess, that world. But I, uh, I really liked where he wanted to go with that, with the um, genome sequencing in his in his pocket. Mm. You know, though, so you can. Well, we're kind of almost at that stage already. Right. But um, so you can just sequence parts of your genome everywhere and find out how you're interacting with the environment as you go around that is kind of an interesting world i think to imagine yeah i, I think you said something along the lines of making it like you're getting your fingerprint done like on, on your phone yeah how crazy would that be yeah yeah it'd be great i could yeah i could see interesting problems with that though as well because i guess every cell in your body would have a unique expression in its genome so mm. um you know, how, how do you tell what your lung cells are doing in the presence of, like, smoke in the environment by testing the cells on your fingerprint? But mm. still, it's something interesting to look forward to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Did you like our guest? Yeah, I thought he was great. He was but, awesome. But, you know, he's a friend of mine as well. Yeah. So <laughs> we, should, we should own up about that. Yeah, yeah I know Martin from uh, hockey from years ago. So that was, yeah, that's how I know him. Nice. But he's a cool guy. Yeah, I like Martin. Um. I thought we should talk a little bit about uh, genome one. Well, not necessarily about genome one because you guys like covered that in the in the chat that you had. But um, so this is the the Garvin initial initiative that uh, Hamid and Martin were talking about, where they're doing whole genome sequencing by prescription. So your doctor can prescribe you to go and have your whole genome sequenced. I think it's I think it's uh, pretty expensive, obviously at the moment, but um, you can go and have every single base pair in your genome read and sequenced so you can have your whole genome um, and people can personalize medicine for you your doctor can personalize medicine so mm. that's really interesting but i remember 
way back, I think it was in episode two when you were talking to Brittany and you asked her about 23andMe and you and Martin talked about this as well and you said that you probably wouldn't have your, you wouldn't do 23andMe. No, I'll do 23andMe, but, uh, you know, there are ethical concerns because if you're 20 20 years old, 25 years old or 27 now, man, I'm old now damn uh um, yeah <laughs> alex is like 10 years old he's yeah, like man yeah, relax ridiculous. dude don't say that because <laughs> i feel like way older no but my my concern with that is you know uh if you're 30 years old let's just say um and you find out that you're genetically predisposed to something like huntington's disease or or alzheimer's or parkinson's you know, knowing that at that age, how is that going to help you? Well, you're not going to be able to change the fact that you have like Huntington's disease, but you know what would happen. Potentially, that could depress you for the next 30 years and, and you'll have a shitty life. Um, with, with Alzheimer's, it, it may be a little bit different because I think the, the variant or the gene that they're looking at is APO1, I believe. It's a specific mm. enzyme. In, it's a machine uh, you can think of it as a machine inside the brain that I think cleans up um, the rubbish uh, or the garbage that your brain cells produce, which is like beta amyloids, I believe. So uh, if you have certain variants of that gene, then you're able to clean up the mess, uh, clean up the garbage uh, better. If you don't, then y- you're more, uh, y- your garbage cleaning skills in your brain is, 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 is hindered. And as a result, you're more prone to developing Alzheimer's. I could totally be wrong about this so you guys need to double check so <laughs> fact check him but but i mean imagine finding out that you're prone to getting like a disease like alzheimer's which i think you could probably take some steps to mitigate or well i think that's exactly outcomes. i think that's exactly where like for me i uh, i haven't done 23 of me but like listening to martin i'm thinking yeah maybe that'd be something cool i'd be into and i should probably i should probably do it because i'd like to i'd like to do that and i'd be interested in that information but for me it's um I think with these things, there's two ways to look at it. There's that way that you're talking about where you could find out that you've got something that's, you know, pretty uh, terrible that's going to really change your life. But you could also find out that you're predisposed to something that if you take certain steps, you can help mitigate mitigate those problems. So could actually also on the flip side give you some information that you're like, hey, I'm really um, predisposed to getting lung cancer. So that could be the impetus to for someone to stop smoking, yep. or something like that. Where, yeah. um, or even like Alzheimer's. I mean, if you have that genetic variant where you're predisposed to getting Alzheimer's, you could sleep better, eat better, eat more healthy, eat like fish oil and, and um, foods that is, that is going to uh, be good for your brain, reduce inflammation, uh, and you know, sleep is a big one as well. Um, people like sleep is connected to so many mental disorders so you could definitely you know address it but there's always that flip side of you know maybe finding out something you weren't ready to find out and that as a con- it yeah. may be I, I, think mean, you've, I think you've got to be ready I think you personally yeah. I think you have to have a bit of an understanding about what it is you're seeing and you have to be ready to like get that information because your, your genes and your genome are they're not really stable i think lots of people when they first get a bit of an understanding about it think that they're just these like rigid things that they just produce set kind of proteins and that's it but i guess uh, a really good way of thinking about your, your genes and your genome is it's your cells way of interacting with the environment 
and so it's always in this constant state of flux so your cell gets like inputs from the environment and that um, genes kind of respond to that and then that in turn the cell responds to the environmental stimulus Mm. Um, so in that respect getting some genetic information about yourself is a it gives you information about how you should relate to your environment. Mm. Yeah. So if you understand what genes you're predisposed, what diseases and things you're predisposed to and what risks you have uh, nested in your genome, that can change and look at how you view your life and live in the future. And that could lead to better health outcomes. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the aims of the King Horn Cancer Center. When I went in there actually to, to meet um, Martin, uh, I went to the receptionist and, and behind them, I think they had like a, 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 should have taken a photo of this, but something to do with personalized medicine. That That's their whole goal. Get go Move away from this, you know, one size fits all uh, model to a more personalized medicine more personalized model where you know you're looking at the genome and you're looking at specifically for that individual what will work and what won't work and i think that's probably the next step yeah yeah exactly uh yeah well that's where they're going isn't it with the genome one and the prescribed um full genome sequencing Mm. yeah so that's interesting interesting stuff um he also brought up the the uh he was actually i think he was talking about his early work with viruses and how he was into viruses in his undergrad Mm -hmm. and you guys were talking about how it's interesting that a viral gene can be inserted into a host, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, but actually be beneficial for that host. Right. And he, he brought up the selfish gene hypothesis. Had you heard of that before? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Richard Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene. Yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, that was his, I think that was his first book, actually. It was a while back. Yeah, I read yeah, that yeah. quite a while back. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea because it's this, I like to see it as the, um, it's like the personification of a gene. So the gene becomes almost like a person with mm. goals and uh, motivations. Mm. But the motivations, as you can have probably guessed from the title of the gene, are, are kind of selfish. Mm. Their genes want to get themselves transcribed. In, uh, sorry, they want to get themselves copied into the next generation. Mm-hmm. So if you view it like that, kind of things start to make sense in molecular biology if you view the gene as this thing that its sole goal is to try and get it into the next generation yeah then stuff like how a virus gene can be beneficial to humans starts to make sense because you see the virus gene is a gene as well so the virus gene wants to get replicated into the next generation so the way a virus gets replicated is if it gets itself this particular virus they get replicated if they put their gene into the host's genome Mm -hmm. yeah and then the host cell actually produces the virus as part of its genome yeah so there if a gene if that gene is then beneficial to that host it's got more likelihood of keep getting reproduced and making it on into the host next generation then like staying into the host into the future yeah isn't there like a ungodly amount of our genome is from viruses uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much, but there's yeah, there's Quite lots of virus yeah. genomes within the human genome. A lot, yeah. actually. Yeah. You know what's interesting? This just um, for the folks out there who've um, you may have heard of CRISPR, which is this uh, gene editing technology, and you're talking about viruses. So, you know, these viruses they have this potential to copy or insert their own DNA, so the genetic makeup into the host's 
genome. So they put their DNA with your DNA, mix it there. Um, and they make the host cell actually produce, produce the virus then from yeah, that. Yeah, they hijack the machinery of the cell to make um, their own, you know, proteins or machines that they can then make more viruses. Um, but what's interesting is that actually our cells have a defense mechanism against that. Yeah. So Martin talked about these RNA molecules. Well, a lot of viruses actually use RNA um, molecules for their genetic, you know, uh, as a means of uh, having that genetic uh, or containing that genetic information. And our, our cells have built up a defense mechanism. So when they when they uh, when they see an RNA molecule, they detect it as a viral. Uh, like as a viral particle and actually bacteria do the same thing and what bacteria do is that when the rna molecule comes out of the the virus they actually grab it and then they go and put it inside its own genome and uses that as a they use that uh rna molecule from the from the virus as, as a sort of defense mechanism because if it's like taking a a, a mugshot of, yeah, of, yeah. of the like criminal picture of it yeah so you're an, taking an identifier it, exactly you take a photo and then you put it in your catalog you're like if i ever see this person again i'm going to shoot him right in his face <laughs> right but what's interesting about that is that they never knew bacteria were able to do that and so this whole crispr technology came about because they realized oh bacteria have this machinery where they can take you know foreign uh, RNA um, and then incorporate that somehow, stick it and glue, cut and paste it right into their own genome. And scientists have used that now to use that sort of process and 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 um, those enzymes, those machinery that that are able to do that to actually edit uh, the the genome of you know uh, cells that they want to edit. So it's pretty interesting because um, they did some research in China where they started using this sort of technology. Uh, and applied it to embryos, and people were freaking out because they were going to make Gattaca essentially, because <laughs> <You know? laughs> these guys could potentially get it to a point where you know they can choose uh, or they can add specific genes and remove specific genes. You could you could see this potentially evolving into a really precise and accurate tool in yeah, the future. And, uh, and yeah. That's when things get really scary, dude. That's when we you know see S scary or exciting. Oh, dude, uh, a bit of both. I'm scared because uh, I think as humans we have a tendency to go towards eugenics. And let me clarify what I mean by that. I think as humans we even take away all that Hitler, Germany, Nazi, American sterilization programs that they had in, in, the, in the 1900s, in the 20th century. I mean, be, even before that, it's eugenics. We select based on certain genes. We, we want to pass certain genes on those that are most beneficial for us. Yeah. You know, that we're naturally... Uh, evolutionarily uh, driven to select for certain traits you know that's why um, like we find certain things about people uh, attractive like a sym a symmetry or the hip to waist ratio and so on and so forth but with this technology you can take that to the next level where you can select eye color you can select like you know do you want them to be buff you want them to be skinny yeah, well, well two things about that one I don't know if you can take it that far because a lot of these um genes don't act just act in isolation right like some genes do some genes you could probably change and yeah select their hair color or their eye color or something like that but things like being buff that might be influenced by thousands of genes or being tall you want someone to be tall that could be influenced by thousands of genes and not only that those genes could also influence other traits so it just may so happen that if you 
upregulate all of those genes because you want someone who's buff or tall that you may lose out and this person may not even be able to like stand up anymore or be able to talk or things like this because genes don't just act on one particular thing they, right. they're, they're it's multifactorial so they they change a whole lot of things at once plus a whole lot of genes influence one particular trait so i don't know if it's quite as simple as being able to go in and use crispr to edit a single gene and then make someone more buff and even if we could do it to thousands of genes to make somebody more buff or more likely to be buff we still have this problem at the trade-off and they might lose other things that we kind of sure. do see so i don't know if it's that clear but um, I had another thing but I was going to say. Before we move on to the <laughs> other thing, no, no. Uh, look, yes, it's a complex process. But think about saying a, a sequencing. So that's um, the technique that people, uh, scientists employ to sequence the whole genome of of, of the human genome. Used right? To, I think it's pretty old, but yeah, very yeah. old, like thirty. I don't yeah. know how many years old, right? That took over a billion dollars. It took so much, like so many resources, and. Compare it to now, man. When I went to the Kinghorn uh, Cancer Center, uh, Marlon was showing me this piece of device that could sequence everything um, way cheaper. I mean, but I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I agree with you that this is, um, you know, a, a but it's, the, it's it, not a simple thing. It's a complex matter. The other reason why I'm I don't think it's a problem, though, um, is because, like, I don't think eugenics is a, pro is, a, is a bit of a dirty word because it gets associated with lots of nasty stuff and that was nasty stuff because you can't take away somebody who's living's life i don't think based on eugenics but i don't have a problem of um i don't have a i don't have a problem using uh Sorry, Sorry. You, know, you, you, I, fully, I, you fully put me off no, you know, <laughs> you know what happened? i was watching uh stand-up comedy last night and they were talking about <laughs> eugenics <laughs> and the guy was saying he's got a crooked toe <laughs> grab a hammer and smash his <laughs> testicles <laughs> <laughs> i was so bad sorry uh, i interrupted you go ahead yeah i was trying to be all really serious <laughs> now i'm gonna have to like reset and like go into it again uh, all right all right here we go bill burr for the guys who who watch comedy you gotta check out <laughs> bill burr i love him sorry <laughs> so let me try that again so um like we're already doing eugenics and genetic eugenics in a lot of areas. So I used to work in uh, embryology, right? And they had a, um, a, a department, most embryology labs now, are probably the, the bigger ones, have a department called PGD, which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So what they do is they'll, um, these uh, women or partners and things will come in for an IVF cycle, um, reproductive cycle, whatever they're having. And, and they'll get a whole lot of embryos from that and they'll actually take they'll biopsy one or two cells from each of those embryos and when they're in the stages of development and they'll genetically test those cells mm -hmm. and if people if some of the um, embryos have uh, genetic disorders then they don't fertilize those embryos oh they sorry they've already been fertilized they don't implant so, those yeah. or uh, those embryos right. um, that's eugenics and, and it, but but is, think yeah. about what it's doing though it, it's these people who have really, really bad genetic disorders in their family, and if they were having kids, these kids would be dying. Um, so it's solving a real serious medical issue, and, and we're getting healthy, happy babies out of it. But that's eugenics. That's selecting people based on their genome through genetic testing. So uh, I, I don't think there's this... this uh, 
But then there, there's not there's not just a clear cut line where you right. just go, um, oh, it, it's uh, eugenics is always bad or eugenics is always good. We're already we're already kind of doing eugenics when we select somebody on the basis of their personality or their hair color. We're select we're selecting them on the basis of their genes, right? Yeah. Um, when people go and have PGD and select an embryo out of like ten that doesn't have the genetic disorder that runs in their family. That's eugenics. Um, this, there's a new mitochondrial DNA treatment where it's a similar, it's an embryology thing where they take um, the genome of uh, uh, an embryo from a, a couple and they put it in an egg from a third woman. So like these three kind of parent embryos, right? Um, because the the because of mitochondrial disorders in the egg well that is eugenics as well so we're doing all these things that have real value on people's lives and are solving real health issues that are basically eugenics so i don't have a problem with that at all and i don't have coming a, from uh, a white person yeah I yeah, that from you, but yeah but <laughs> yeah i don't have a problem with that at all but you know in um I think where I would draw the line is when people are already born and people are already people because they have experiences and they have relationships. Mm -hmm. We can't lock those people up based on genetics and we can't, that's where I draw the line. I, I think, I think um, if individuals want to make choices about the medicine they get and sure. um, but, if people want to edit the genomes of things. Can to I, get, can I, there's some ethical laws I think where you're not allowed to edit the, the, the genes of, of, germ cells which is yeah, like yeah, your, your, yeah, your sperm right. and your egg cells because they can you know uh, affect multiple generations it's you've introduced you know a piece of dna that could go you know 100 generations if if those people survive I, I could be wrong but i think a lot of the arguments in support of those laws are not necessarily to do with eugenics but more to do with um this idea of the precautionary principle, right? We, we don't want to mess with the genomes of subsequent, subsequent generations because we don't know what will happen. No, I so think it's more along the lines, maybe, but I thought it was more along the lines that these people didn't have a choice. You know, they're born and you've already altered their DNA. Uh, so they didn't, they didn't consent. Yeah, possibly. I, yeah, I, I don't see... Because we're already doing that, you know. Well, we're not. We're not altering the DNA. We're definitely selecting on the basis of I DNA think, yeah. who gets born. Sure, sure. We're already doing, it. and I don't have a problem with that. Yes, yeah, but then the, the, that's the thing. But know, then what's the difference? So where's, someone, where's the line? You're let like, me let me pose you a hypothetical. Then, yeah, sure. we have this same couple who comes in for a, a fertility treatment in PGT, right? Mm -hmm. um, now they come in, and they have their ten embryos screened, and they're really lucky. Three of those embryos don't carry the debilitating genetic disorder. Yep, and um, and they get one implanted and they have a kid. Next couple comes in, um, and they have ten embryos screened, and all of those ten embryos have the genetic disorder. Let's say it is perfectly safe. Let's get the precautionary principle out of the way. Sure. What's the problem with taking one of those ten embryos and using something like CRISPR to take out the defective gene and put in a proper copy? So all you're doing is removing a defective sure. gene and putting in the proper copy, sure. and now the embryo gets born as a normal, as a normal healthy person. child. Okay. What's the ethical okay, concern sure. there? For that example, I think ethically there's nothing wrong with it, but then you open up the door to, you know, what's wrong with selecting for eye color? What's wrong, what's wrong with everyone wanting blue eyes and blonde hair and, and pale skin and, you know, six foot four 
six foot four feet, you know, kids um, who weigh like 200 kilos and they look like, I don't know, man, uh, goddamn superheroes. You know, they look like yeah. Captain America. But You could have laws to prevent, like you could have laws that says it's man? only a, m- a medical thing. But why? Yeah, but well. Why? If one, it's all safe. I mean, you know what my fear is? that I think, I think it's not well, so much eugenics. I think what, what I'm afraid of is that everyone's going to move towards homogeneity so everyone wants the same sort of traits they want their kids to not be sick at all you know have Mm. no diseases all have like be like supermodels be goddamn intelligent but the problem with that is yeah that all that seems really good ostensibly it's great but the issue is when a disease comes along so a new virus or, or something like that comes along it's like having monocrops in farming if all the crops are the same it, it clones of each other then the, there's no diversity within the population so everybody gets wiped out and i'll give you an example so i think people who have malaria and i could be totally wrong and this is an example in in africa people who are who had the the um who no people who had not malaria sorry uh, hemophilia people who who were um who have the genes to become uh, hemophilic were more resistant against malaria. I think you're talking about sickle cell anemia. Oh, but yeah, I get like your that. point. Yeah, yeah. So if you, like have that, that, yeah, if you have sickle cell anemia, then uh, yeah, I don't know. I, this is like in the deep recesses in my mind. Yeah. I think it's if you have sickle cell anemia, then you're uh, less likely. Or if you just have the uh, one copy of the sickle cell anemia gene, not a double copy, then yeah. you're less, you got resistance to malaria. Right. And you don't suffer enough of the effects of the sickle cell anemia for it to be a big problem so it's actually a benefit exactly so in 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 this hypothetical world potentially people say hey we don't want sickle cell anemia um we don't want any diseases and so uh, diseases or conditions which may or may not give them you know protection from other potential conditions or diseases that may come in the future so if we make everyone you know not sick they have the quote-unquote perfect dna perfect genome then Along comes a certain threat, a, a certain biological disease, a virus, a bacterial contamination, whatever the case may be. And next thing you know, there's like one person surviving. Yeah. You know, everybody gets wiped out. And that one person is the one that didn't have any genetic alterations. And uh, now yeah, he doesn't even have you. a girlfriend to make more babies. So the humanity is just destroyed. I, I think, uh, yeah, I think you raise a really fair point. I don't necessarily agree that that'll happen. Like, I think it's, who knows, that may happen, that may, if, if we go down this road, or people may still have diverse enough interest that it doesn't happen. Um, and But, yeah, that, you're right. I think that is definitely something you have to think about. But what about this, just before we move on, this is actually an interesting discussion, but um, what, about, what about, say, you know, we want to go into space one day, yeah, and colonise other planets. What about... Altering the human genome so, so, we're, survive. so we can survive in low oxygen atmospheres or, you know, uh, can run faster in low gravity or you know, things like this. Can survive in lower, colder environments so we can live on different planets. What about that type of stuff? Yeah, you raised some good, uh, good points, man. Like, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't, don't know, know if I'm against that. Um, I don't know if I'm against that at all. You know, it's tricky. This mm. is this is one of those things where uh, it's not so black and white, you know. You yeah, can come up yeah, with what exactly. if this, what if that. What I, th- if I that. think that's the same with lots of technologies, though. Like, you can think of lots of ways that scientific advancement and scientific technology can be really negative. Disruptive, you can yeah. also think of ways that it can be really beneficial. And I think that gets to the point. Like, 
science is kind of just a, t- a tool to do stuff mm-hmm. and so y- you you can use it to do whatever you want to do just depends what you want to do if you do want to make you know um nuclear medicine or do you want to make a nuclear bomb sure you know sure, sure. That, so yeah and it's it's a good point you know science is a tool and um, this is where philosophy and science really work hand in hand because the philosophers are the ones that deal with the ethics of, of what we do in science, you know. Um, they're the ones that determine if it's ethical to do you know, experiments on human beings or on chimps or, uh, or, or if, if it's ethical to do these genetic manipulations on people. So it's definitely not a black and white and uh, uh, these are, I think, issues that we have to talk about and address as these technological progressions occur. Because, you know, technology that's super disruptive yeah, we're getting can be positive yeah. and negative. And, and we're getting it fast too. We live in a very technological society. It's yeah. coming real quick and we've got to catch up, I think, like yeah. socially and politically. The thing is, you know, look, the technology is evolving so fast that our biology isn't keeping up. Mm. So yeah. it's, it's like, you know, we see all these advancements, but we still have the same genes of people who lived in caves 10, 15,000 years ago. See, that's why we need uh, this genome sequencing on the fly and CRISPR. <laughs> Turn us from caveman into like... Aliens, Superman. aliens. You know that's what I think. It, um, aliens are. I think they probably us from the future. We we don't need any more sex organs. <laughs> this, you know, happiness is in a pill. Um, you, uh, we have telepathy because of technology. That's why all these alien stories. They all look like us. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's and that's a perfect explanation. Dude, for that's, it. that's I'm convinced. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I know. I we've gone on a bit now, but felt like we couldn't leave it without bringing up the controversy in uh with martin's work with the creationists and um evolutionists let's call them for junk dna because i i don't know about you but i like talk about this stuff quite a like bit on the internet and in groups and things like this and i've heard this argument before about junk dna and you hear it from both sides you hear you hear sometimes you hear people arguing in support of evolution that you know, there's lots of junk DNA because, and junk DNA disproves that there's a creator, but it kind of equivocates on this meaning of junk DNA a little bit. And then you also hear from that creationist side, oh, look, they point to people's work like Martin's and they'll say, look, these scientists found out that this part of our DNA that we didn't have a use for actually has a use now. So therefore it isn't junk. Therefore there is an intelligent designer who created it all perfectly. Wait, wait, wait. How, how did they jump from... Well, you see, I, th- I think it's a problem, right? If there's junk DNA, if there is actual... Well, first we need to talk about this equivocation on the word junk. Maybe we should start there. Mm-hmm. Because I th- I, like when I've been taught about what junk... And I'm using scare quotes here. Junk DNA is... Um, Did you get taught junk DNA in high school? We didn't... Oh, no, I didn't do science in high school. But in oh. undergrad, um, so in molecular biology, we, we get told that there's parts of the genome that we don't know what its function is for and some of this could be junk and that when we don't know what it is and that I think it's an old term as well this term junk DNA but my understanding of that scientifically is that junk DNA just doesn't necessarily mean it def- definitely doesn't have any function it could also just be that we're not aware of what the function is for it yeah. yet or yeah um, or it's not protein forming as well yeah yeah that, that's what, you know when I was in high school this is what I got taught in year 11 um, biology, they said that, you know, only like, I don't know, 10% of the genome 
codes for proteins and these numbers aren't accurate so i'm just giving you some rough numbers and about 90 percent is junk dna and i thought why why do we have 90 percent? that makes zero sense to me yeah why is that junk is it because we don't know what it does or is this legit junk and i think and i think legit like uh martin's work is really interesting because it's it's really fine it's like we're working out what this stuff does now and that's fascinating it's fascinating um to hear that and I think uh, the controversy he was saying is a lot of people, because the reason, we'll get back to the creationist type of thing, I think the reason why the creationists get so adverse to this term of junk DNA is because if there is an intelligent designer who designed our genomes perfectly and everything, why would he put stuff that's useless in there, right? So it's kind of like disproves their argument. Mm -hmm. So when scientists come out and they're finding uses for this junk DNA, they kind of grab that and they say, look, here's a use for it. Here's a use junk. for it. It's not junk. You you guys were wrong. It's not junk. Yeah, and they were wrong. Uh, you know, it's wrong to say that it is junk because, as Martin's work showing, it isn't junk. Now I don't know that necessarily proves that creationism's true. And like as Martin said, he used evolution to kind of reach his conclusions. So, yeah, it's interesting. Hi, huh? everybody wants to. It's it's confirmation bias. Every <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly for everyone involved. It's so weird. We do that as human beings. Um, we twist things just to, to make it sense, to, to make it fit the narrative that we want to tell, which is not a good idea to do. Um, but yeah, that, that's one of the things that you see a lot in science, you know, people running with it, um, r running with conclusions that have really no basis uh, uh, in truth. Something that a lot of people do is the anti-vaxxers. Yeah. That's one good example. Yeah, exactly. And that's the same. They'll, they'll find like one uh, study that they think supports their conclusion and they jump on that. Yeah. But you know what's even worse than that? So Dr. Wakefield is the one that did the autism and vaccination study on yeah. like 12 kids. And coincidentally, he was suing the pharmaceutical companies at the same time. So, oh, yeah, there's no bias there. But so, um, but there's this other study that a lot of anti-vaxxers like to use where um, they talk about how there was a study where they found a high correlation between, I think, autism, no, no, neurodegenerative disorders and, and vaccines. And guess how they, they, they conducted the study? How? Surveys. Oh, they yeah. called people up and they surveyed them. Well, yeah, yeah, that's legit. S such a great way of, yeah. they didn't do any sort of uh, biochemical analyses. They didn't do any of that. They, they just based it on survey. And I see this floating around uh, in the anti-vaxxer, you know, websites, vaxtruth.org, or I don't mm -hmm. know what it is. But it's it's interesting how, you know, people just take what they want to believe and, and make it fit into a certain story that they're pushing down uh, either their own throats it, even, or even other when, people's. Even like in Martin's case where the work he did actually used that kind of assumption of, evolution and yeah. common ancestry <laughs> to reach same. his conclusions yeah. so he actually used that to reach his conclusions yeah. he's so using evolution so yeah sure he he demonstrated that large part of what we didn't have a function for large parts of the genome which we didn't know a function for had a this function in um, making long non-coding rnas yep. um or it might have just been rnas secondary structures in general i can't remember but um yeah it I forgot what I was going to talk about. Yeah, th th yeah, that, that's people twist things. That's that's the yeah, whole that's point right. Of this, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, people people, people just shit. take that little yeah. part of it and jump on that kind of bandwagon and rather and forget how he reached that conclusion. Right. And what an interesting thing to have to deal with with your and, research. Yeah, with your research yeah. as well. I think it's, it's really it's really yeah. Mm. Um, so let's let's wrap this up, Alex. Um, 
But before we do, uh, anyone who's out there who's thinking of getting into research into this field specifically, whether it's bioinformatics or dealing with the genome and RNA, you can you can hit up the Kinghorn Institute. Just Google them, because uh, one thing that Martin did say is they don't they don't get enough postgraduate students because they don't have those affiliations with universities besides UNSW. So if you're bright and you're interested in this sort of uh, research, uh, then we would encourage you to get in contact with them, send them emails, and say, hey, you heard you heard Martin on on the, on Blabcoats, and you think what the Kinghorn Institute is doing is fantastic and interesting, and you want to, you want to be a part of that. Yeah, that's the Kinghorn Cancer Center and the Garvin Institute. So, yeah, you should Sorry. hit both of those yep. up and look around. And they do, um, the Garvin in particular does lots more research in immunology and mm. cell biology and lots of other areas yeah. as well. So, yeah, it, they had a lot of cool stuff in the in, in the facilities when I went there. Uh, we'll upload those on, on YouTube and share it with you guys. But thank you again for listening. And do you want to add anything? Bye. Okay, that's a weird. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Blabcoats. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow it by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabcoats at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.